Oh Lord, as we prayed in our collect for the day today, we ask that we might live out our faith, which we confess, that your Holy Spirit would stir in our hearts that fervence for the gospel, that we might not be indifferent to stories that we've heard before, and Lord, that you might use this text to inspire us to believe, to deal with those who are doubting, maybe to help our own belief. We pray as St. Anselm prayed, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the uh, sequence hymn is evidence that you shouldn't always follow your priest. You need to read what's going on in the bulletin <laughs> as well as in God's word. Um, it's one of those hymns that uh, has the familiar tune. I th- I, what is it? I, I sing the mighty power of God, but of course it's the Easter version. I sing of the resurrection. Uh, here we are, the second Sunday of Easter, and still we start the service by saying, Alleluia, the Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Easter's not over. In fact, Easter is even longer as a season than Christmas and Christmas tide. Easter tide lasts for 50 days all the way up to the eve of Pentecost. And why is that so important? Well, aside from the number of people who reject Christianity outright, there's much confusion about it. There's much confusion about Easter, even. At least, people should know what they're rejecting, right? The Washington Post this week ran an article correcting an article on an NPR in which an NPR reporter reported that Easter is, quote, the day celebrating the idea that Jesus did not die or go to hell or purgatory or anywhere at all, but rather arose into heaven on this Sunday. Did you catch that? (laughs) Again, you can't believe everything you read or hear, right? Easter, of course, is not about Jesus not dying. It's not about Jesus not going to purgatory. It's not about Jesus going directly to heaven. Going directly to heaven is the Feast of the Ascension, right? It's about Jesus being raised from the dead, rising from the dead. It's important, so important, that we as Christians get the historical facts correct and at least understand the basic theology because if people can't come to us with those questions, to whom can they go? Easter focuses 50 long days on the resurrection itself, on what's going on here, on the impact that it makes in our lives, how it changes us as we prayed, how our faith is put into action because we are that Easter people, as St. John Paul II once said. In this joyful season known as Easter or Pascha, or sometimes the Queen of Feasts, we spend a significant time talking about this as a community. What does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead before he ascended to heaven? And this morning we want to look at three different things. Number one, 
The Jesus, we assert, has bodily risen from the dead and walked upon this earth. Number two, that he is the long-promised prophet, servant that God sent into the world. And number three, that he has overcome the world. The first is self-evident. If we're going to believe the Gospel of John, at least, or any of the other Gospels, open with me to John's Gospel. And as you're opening to that chapter, I want to uh, share with you the fact that every year, the church lectionary hits on this text in John, on the second week of Easter. Why do you suppose that is? As we open here to the book of John, chapter 20, verse 19. Why is it that the church hits on this passage the Sunday after Easter, every year? You know, you've got the three lectionary tracts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But every year this one's preached. Why do you suppose that is? Any guesses? None? Bingo, yeah. Because this is not an easy thing to believe. Christ's bodily resurrection is not an easy thing to believe. It wasn't an easy thing to believe then. It isn't an easy thing to believe now. And so, in her wisdom, the church has put this passage here in the second Sunday of Easter saying, look, we know that we made this outlandish claim last week that this guy was crucified for your sins, that this guy was buried, was truly dead, that this guy rose from the dead and claims to be the son of God. We know that that is outlandish to a world. That is miraculous to a world. And so, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what this means. And by the way, if you have doubts in your mind, you're not alone. One of the apostles himself dealt with those doubts. Thomas by name. It's also chronologically, if you pay attention to the text, the next week after Easter, after the resurrection day. Did you catch that? It's easy to gloss over. Look at verse 19, or look at verse, it's actually, it's, it's said both in verse 19 and 26. 19 says, on the evening of that day, which should automatically make you ask, what day? Right? On the evening of that day, what day? What day is that? Well, if you look at the rest of the text, it's the resurrection day, right? Jesus appears to the ten. But then look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were again inside. Eight days later, hmm, it's the next week, do you see? And so we follow the chronology of it too. John's gospel offers this in a timeline for us. And that's unusual for John. John doesn't always do that. John's more interested, actually, in following, not chronology, but themes. So if you take the book of John and you compare it to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will find discrepancies. But you only find discrepancies if you're looking at John as a chronological timeline, right? This has driven, you know, people crazy for a long time because... Not in, the, not in the ancient world, but in the enlightenment world, because we expect things to follow A, B, C, D. That's not what's going on in John. However, John makes an exception in this passage and gives us a timestamp. 
He gives us a date, very much like Luke gives us a timestamp or a date as to the birth of Christ, right? At the, the famous beginning of Luke that we read every Christmas. So John does here. Why does he do that, do you suppose? Again, as Holly asserted earlier, because this is something hard to believe. So John's saying, look, this is not some ethereal, spiritual, you know, nice resurrection idea of Jesus being rising again in my heart. And, you know, you hear this kind of nonsense. This is a true event that happened at a particular time for a particular people that comes down to you through me, John, who witnessed it. He says at the end of today's gospel passage, these things were written so that you might believe. And it calls to us, both as believers and to the unbelievers out there, saying, this is what this is about, and it happened. I experienced it. It's true. It's real. It's not some myth, some nice story that we read just so that we can go out and, you know, be like Jesus and rise again and do good works. That's not what this is about. This is about Christ accomplishing something in history. Many modern commentators like to make the point that the disciples of Jesus were backwoods simpletons, that they were easily fooled. Well, that's false. St. Luke, just looking at their professions, was a physician, a well-educated man. Matthew was a tax collector. Yeah, hated by many, but educated. And later, Paul, a Pharisee, is so well studied in Greek philosophy that to this day his arguments are looked at in law schools because they're so tight. But our era also has trouble believing in the resurrection because of our sophistication. We come to it outside of the church, our culture, those that come to it, come to it with incredulity. We come to it skeptics. Another objection is made, and that's the idea that the idea of bodily resurrection was a common one in the ancient world. Well, it's kind of true that there are myths in the ancient world that deal with resurrection. The god of medicine, Aeschylus, was killed by Zeus, only to be resurrected and transformed into a major deity. Achilles, of the Iliad fame, had been killed and his body was snatched from the pyre by his divine mother, Thetis, and was resurrected. But none of these resurrections are tied to a specific time and place or witnesses. And none of these resurrections were believed to be fact. They were seen as the mythical stories that they were. In fact, even by the time of Socrates in 300 BC, these accounts were not seen as historical from the Greek myths. But Christianity claims to be, and is in fact, myth made fact. Myth made fact. C.S. Lewis puts it beautifully. This is from one of his essays from the book God in the Dock when he says, Christianity is a myth which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God, without ceasing to be a myth, comes down from heaven of legend and imagination to earth of history. It happens at a particular date. 
in a particular place, followed by a definable historical consequence. We pass from Balder or Arsus, dying where nobody knows when or where, to a historical person crucified under Pontius Pilate. By becoming fact, it does not cease to be myth. But that is the miracle. You see what he's saying? That Christ embodies this, but makes that myth fact and real. And it seems too good to be true. The Apostle Peter makes this point in the reading that Ryan read from Acts today. Peter is speaking to the Hebrew people. And he talks to them about how Jesus was suffering in Acts 3.18 and how God would raise him up. Look with me at Acts 3.22. He's speaking from Deuteronomy. He says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Peter's simply quoting Deuteronomy 18 verse 16. But the fascinating thing there is you and I read that the Lord will raise up this prophet. What, what does that make you think? When you hear that word, the Lord will raise up this prophet. Well, the first time I read it, it just made me think, well, the Lord's going to bring this about. The Lord's going to bring this to pass, right? But then I started digging into the language, and here's what's exciting and why Peter's text is so convincing. Because the word here in the Greek is anastemi, anastemi literally meaning not to put forth or to put forward, but to raise up, to bring up from the dead. And if you turn back into the Hebrew in Deuteronomy, you see that the prophecy here actually uses a Hebrew word that isn't to put forth, but to raise up from the dead, from the ground, to be made alive. So Peter is here saying, look, even in the Old Testament, from the very beginning, Jesus was predicted to be raised up from the ground, from death itself. Not just to be put forward as some prophet or servant, but to come back from the dead. Likewise, the alternative reading for this morning which I struggled really hard, which one to do? Isaiah, the Isaiah reading is wonderful too. But Isaiah 26, 19 talks about the dead rising and how we shall be raised up in him. You see, the Jews had prophesied these things in their scripture thousands of years before Jesus came. Jesus is the myth that became fact, the historical reality. The apostles in the ancient church certainly do not think that people are going to accept the resurrection lightly. And for this reason, we come to this passage in John's gospel. There's lots of evidence for the resurrection, but it's still hard to believe, isn't it? It's still hard to grasp. Look with me at verse 19 through 25 in John.
on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger in the marks of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Stop. Only ten of the apostles are there at the first meeting of Christ. The apostle Thomas can't believe it. It's too good to be true. And therefore, eight days later, Jesus has to come back for Thomas and address him specifically. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. And see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. I've always found it difficult to understand why many in the church are against doubt. You hear it from pulpits. You read it in a lot of things, that somehow doubt is wrong. That's not the message that I take from this passage. Now, there are two types of doubt. There's doubt that's just not really doubt. It's skepticism. It's not really interested in following the truth where it leads. It's just interested in playing games. But true doubt, true doubt is question And true question seeks an answer. And Jesus here in this passage comes to us and says, you question and I will answer. You question and I will answer. Jesus doesn't rebuff Thomas. Jesus doesn't come back and say, how dare you, Thomas, not believe what I told the rest of the disciples. He doesn't cast Thomas out for his doubt. What does he do? He says, all right, you can't go this far. Here, touch it. Touch that nail mark in my hand. Here, take your, take your hand and put it in my side. Think about that for a minute. I mean, this, this passage is so familiar to us, but think about putting your fingers in the nail marks. Think about putting your hand in the spear wound of the man's side. You doubt. Don't doubt. Don't be disbelieving. Rather, believe. Believe. I see this as evidence of Jesus' love and desire so much that everyone follows him that he's willing to go the extra mile here. And the same is true today. That when we doubt... Reach to Jesus. 
He'll come the extra mile back to you. Don't be a skeptic, but seek him in that doubt. The Apostle Thomas did. He'll provide the evidence you need in his hands, in his feet, in his body. And finally, Jesus has overcome the world. We continue in our celebration of Easter here. Jesus is patient with us, even if we're questioning things. Later in life, the Apostle John, who records the gospel today, writes to the church in the epistle. It's a short epistle, and I was tempted to preach entirely on it because it's like five verses, but it's so richly packed. But look at the epistle reading, finally. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. What's John saying here? If we believe in Jesus, if we want to be his disciple, if we claim to be his disciple, we're united to him. We're united to him. Which means that we'll obey his commandments because we love him. And that's why it's not burdensome. Is that saying that being a Christian is not burdensome? Boy, I hope that's not what it's saying because I've found that to be patently false. Being a Christian is burdensome. But why is it not burdensome in the way that weighs upon your soul? Because you're following your Lord, your risen Lord, who's overcome this world, who's overcome the dead. God who is recreating creation in his resurrection. And notice, we can't leave out the Holy Spirit both in John's gospel and here in the epistle, who's the active person working in us the whole time? What does Jesus do to the apostles before he commissions, commissions them? He breathes upon them. It says, receive the Holy Spirit. What does he do in baptism? He gives us his Holy Spirit so that as we die with him, so we can rise with him. God desires us to have these kinds of honest conversations with one another and with the world. Why? It's a matter of life and death. God wants us to push past the cliches, to bring our doubts to him and look for answers, to bring others to him with their doubts to look for answers. I love the closing of John's gospel here. If there was any question as to what he's trying to do in writing this account. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That by believing, you may have life in his name. Isn't that beautiful? It reaches through the spans of millennium to us. That this historical fact has real validity in our world today. We don't need to make this relevant. It is relevant. Just look at the saints and martyrs over the years that have died for this faith. Look where the Holy Spirit's acted. Look how the Holy Spirit's corrected his church when it's gone astray. Christianity is not a stupid religion. And it's not a blind faith. 
or an empty ritual. It's a religion of the whole person, body and soul, for whom both and in both Jesus was raised. As Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed in me. Amen.